This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatters.com. And we are also a YouTube channel. So if you go to YouTube and just type in Spirit Matters, Matters is, ends with an S, it's plural, uh, talk, Spirit Matters talk. Uh, we have about 300 shows in our archives. Uh, we've been on the YouTube channel. We have about uh, 25 episodes there. And, uh, and we want to uh, thank those people that have contributed to help keep us on the air and go to spiritmatterstalk.com and find out if you would like to be one of those people. And uh, we are very happy today to have a guest, an author, a psychotherapist for over 40 years, uh, a man who's led uh, an amazingly interesting life, and somebody who I am looking forward to speaking to because he's someone who can speak about spirituality, not just in the abstract, but how uh, it uh, comes into play when you really have to deal with the bumps and bruises of life. His book, Riding the Edge, A Love Song to Deborah. I'll repeat that, Riding the Edge, A Love Song a love song to Deborah. Uh, thank you so very much, Michael, for taking the time. He's in Israel, by the way. I'm in Iowa and Phil's in Los Angeles. So through Great. the year of, of, of uh, Zoom, we're here. Uh, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on. A pleasure. Absolutely a pleasure. Especially Another like international. international <laughs> here we go. Another international uh, conversation. Michael, uh, we always like to begin by having our guests tell our listeners and viewers something about their own spiritual history. If you could give us a brief overview of your spiritual background and what brought you to write this uh, memoir we're talking about today. You know, it's interesting. It's a good question. It's not one I had actually prepared for, so it's a good one. Um, I would say this, that my spiritual history began when I was a kid with by having heroes. And my heroes as a child were Willie Mays. You were and, on the wrong team, Michael. No, no, I was on the right team. And then they deserted, <laughs> me. They deserted me in 1957 to go no, to, Los no, no. Angeles, to San Francisco. I grew up in Brooklyn and I too. Oh, you, yo, so you. I was a Yankee fan from New Jersey, yeah. Uh, okay. But I loved, I loved Willie Mays, so go ahead. <laughs> okay. So, um, and then I also had another her hero, Clarence Darrow, who was the lawyer who took on the Scopes trial and stuff like right. that. I read these, you know, as a child, I was reading books about Clarence Darrow. I had a fascination for him. So I think that there was something about the hero myth that was perhaps the initial spark. It wasn't anything to do with um, God, supernatural, anything above and beyond the human, but there was something about extraordinary humans that gave me a lot of, I would say, had a tremendous influence on my development as a kid. I didn't come from the easiest circumstances. And I think I kind of sort of projected myself onto these sort of heroic types. And there was always a sense within myself from a young age that we, that I, we, all of us are beyond just the limited circumstances of who we are. And it wasn't anything formulated by any kind of a philosophy. It was played out more psychologically, experientially. Um, I was a pretty crazy and wild kid and I would do a lot of stuff to break the rules, but it was always trying to explore boundaries. In not again, not in a very formalized way, but there was a, I think I had a sense about myself and certainly other people may have as well, 
that I had this tremendous amount of energy and I needed to express it and go beyond the limitations of my community or whatever was expected of me growing up on Long Island. And uh, I think that was the beginning of a kind of a spiritual path. Then I, I, in my 20s, I was gotten into Alta, you know, probably like many of us, Castaneda, Carlos Castaneda, and was fascinated by that. And of course, did a lot of exploration in, in drugs and hallucinogenics, and which to me were a tremendous awakening, really tremendous awakening. Fortunately, I had actually excellent experiences and I learned a great deal. And I think that sort of led to meditation and also running became a tremendous passion of mine as well. Again, I think there was, and I was thinking that about that recently in writing the book, I think I had a sense of, without even putting a word to it, a sense of spirit inside of me, they needed to expand. And I felt that in almost like, you know, to expand the limitations of the body by running long distances or riding bicycles at crazy speeds and feeling this tremendous, extraordinary experience of oneness. Um, so that, um, that, and the book, I'll get more now into the book. The book also was a, a, our decision to go on this journey, on this bicycle, we're going around the world on a bicycle, on a, around the world on bicycles. We chose to do that after we'd both gotten our doctorates and decided, okay, we needed a break. We needed a break from the expected routine of being a psychotherapist where your role is, I would say is severely limited, but is limited where there's a certain expectation of how you're supposed to be and what your interactions are designed to accomplish. I think both of us wanted to kind of throw it all away and just go to a, have an experience of the unknown, of uncertainty. There was a, some desire. I mean, I, first of all, I'm, I was a big fan of Thomas Paine and that's every seven years you need a revolution. I feel like internally also, we get into our comfort zones and we were in our comfort zones in America. We were, as young psychologists, we were doing quite well. We had a good life. And it's interesting, I think I have this restless spirit that doesn't feel comfortable when things are going too well. There's some kind of inner drive. If it's, if it's too well, it can't be the truth. The truth is too disruptive. It's too uncomfortable. When you're feeling so good, I know it's perhaps counterintuitive, but when you're feeling too good, you really need to question. This is my philosophy. I'm saying I need to question whether am I actually living the truth or am I just experiencing a lot of comfort and am I able to live within certain expectations? Anyway, this journey was designed to throw all of that up. Uh, let me let me interject there because I have a question for you related to this. Then continue. But uh, I read you wrote I, I forget where I if it was in the book or, or elsewhere I was reading about you that uh, before a period of growth, before a you know uh, any movement forward in one's life, there's usually uh, chaos, uh, uh, disruption, and and uh, th that's sort of what you're describing now. Now in your life, did you wait for that disruption for that chaos to come naturally, or when there are times when you thought, you know what, things are too smooth now, let me create some chaos so I can have some further growth. And, and if that were the case, that, ha that happened consciously or unconsciously? I think, first of all, it's a great question you're asking. I think that, um, you know, it, it, it probably has a lot to do with it, that, um, you know, I, I do believe, you know, it's story of creation, that chaos 
you know, precedes creation between, you know, first there's void and then there's form. So I think sort of psychologically, I felt that. I felt that need to create a certain amount of chaos, of unknown, of uncertainty and formlessness. And again, it was not something that I would have articulated precisely in that way. Now is in, in looking back, I could say, yes, that was the case. You know, later on, you know, you, you, uh, there's a, you know, the famous quote, be careful what you ask for, you just might get it. Mm -hmm. So we got it. We got the chaos. We got the uncertainty. We got um, the transformation that we were hoping to have, but not in any way in the direction we would have expected. So um, we wanted the unexpected. We got the unexpected. And so I guess in that respect, the trip was extremely successful. Um, Later in life, I got a certain amount of unexpected chaos that I didn't ask for, but it just happened. So it's a different kind of chaos. Let's just say I, it's the case. Yeah. Sorry. Yes, please. No, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I thought you were done, but um, did you want to finish your uh, thought? No, no, that's okay. Okay. So uh, I can't uh, uh, resist going back to Willie Mays. <laughs> And I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, I've been a, a sports fan my whole life. And, uh, you know, and when I was young, I played a lot. And I grew up in New York and uh, rooting against Willie Mays' team, but admiring. You can't even say the name, can you? <laughs> no, he can't. You can't even say the name. <laughs> Where did no, your no, team but, wind up, Phil? I knew he was yeah. the best, despite uh. rooting against him. And in those days, he embodied something, he and Jackie Robinson, he embodied something that later we would attribute to people like Michael Jordan and LeBron James. And one of those things was disruption. They were, he was not only uh, great and did things no one else did, which is, I'm sure one of the things that made him a hero to you, but he also created the kind of chaos that the opposition couldn't handle. Was, is that part of what attracted you to why you said he first, the first hero you mentioned was Willie Mays. Wow. Now, first of all, that's very interesting what you're saying. I hadn't thought of it like that. You know, you're talking, I have to go back to my, you know, eight, 10, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old, you know, brain. The first thing when you started saying, the first word that came to my mind was joy yeah. in a way that, in a way that I had never seen in any person or anyone I knew, none of my parents, my parents' friends, I, everything was done with force and effort. And I saw that with my father. My father did everything with force. There was no flow. Willie Mays embodied to me <laughs> right. something yeah. transcendental, and you're right. And flow and just the pure infectious joy of doing something brilliantly and yeah. something he loved doing. And it's very interesting, Phil, you should say that because I think that to some degree, I, I try to embody that in the things that I do. And to try to feel that sense of oneness and joy. And, and so great, wow, that's, you know, it's, I, I, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, I changed all my passwords, so I'm not giving anything away, but all my passwords 
for years were Willie. <laughs> before or it's it's, it's crazy give, i'm not going to give any what mine are uniform numbers of brooklyn dodgers <laughs> My, mine are mine are much less interesting <laughs> and here we thought here i thought i was being unique right, right. <laughs> i i want to go in an, uh, another direction uh, in in regard to something you wrote uh that uh was actually it's a brilliant brilliant uh analogy. And uh, you were talking about people being atheists, agnostic, uh, believers, and, and uh, you, you, your own journey in life with your wife and, and, and Alzheimer's. And, and the analogy used was, uh, there's no, uh, there's no uh, agnostics or atheists in a foxhole. So yeah, in other yeah. words, when your life is this far, you know, when, when it's, you're, you're facing the abyss, uh, what choice do you have to and, and and is that something that occurred to you after your wife's illness or before or did it happen uh, uh, more than one time in your life tell us about that yeah i would say that i i mean i, I would put it somewhat differently i think that i i think i'm quoting myself i don't know if anyone else said it but i've said for a long time god doesn't run a candy store and um like you know i another great truth that I, I'll quote to you was, which goes to the heart of what you're asking here, which is when a month before Leonard Cohen died, he was interviewed on NPR radio and they asked him, what's the culmination of all of your spiritual searchings, your drug use, etc." And his answer was two words, don't whine. And there's something really profound about that. Because just to keep your mouth shut and not complain, that's one thing. But when you don't whine, it's an acceptance on a much more profound level. It's not a passive acceptance, an acceptance of my wife's Alzheimer's. I don't whine about it. I cry about it. I've lost the, the love of my life. I really have. I mean, I've been blessed to have been with the most extraordinary woman, but she's gone. She's fading. There's, there's 2% of what she used to be. Um, but I, it's not a question of why I accept that this is... God, fate, the universe, whatever you wish to call it, this is the path that has occurred. There's nothing we can do about it. There was nothing we could have done to prevent it. It, it absolutely just happened, okay? So, but I don't whine about it, but I accept the pain in, the, in all of the responsibility and learning how to love someone who is basically not there in any way, shape or form as I knew her. Um, so I do have a very profound sense that I don't fight the universe. And I, I don't think I have for a long time. It does, but I'm not a passive individual either. And I think part of it is faith. I have a deep faith. And um, I think uh, after my wife, uh, actually about a year or so after my wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and I was trying to really understand my emotions and I was blocked, I found a psychologist after 35 years, he's 90 years old. And I said, I would never go to someone younger than me. And there's not that many people around who are older than me, who are not retired. But luckily I found this fellow and he said something to me the other day. He said something, he said, listen, you have to reach 90 to really know that you know nothing. I said, ah, I'm 75. And I, oh, that means I have about 80% realize I don't know anything that this is a strange universe we live in. So, 
a strange and beautiful universe, I should say, and painful. Now, Michael, um, we've already uh, uh, leaped into uh, sort of the end of your book because you don't uh, mention your wife's Alzheimer's until the epilogue. Right, right. The, the memoir itself is a love story about your early years together. Excellent. And uh, I want to come back to the uh, the Alzheimer's, but the memoir itself, um, when we were approached to have you on the show, uh, your publicist you know, told us that you had a lot to say about um, the relationship of spirituality and uh, psychology to being a resilient person and dealing with the, the ups and downs of life. You had a very romantic story to tell, but you also had difficulties. Your wife, you were, you were, uh, had a strong Jewish connection. Your wife was not until she converted. She was disowned. So there were family conflicts. Can you tell us about that interreligious tension uh, and what it, what it was like to, to deal with? Well, first of all, I have to correct you. I didn't have a strong Jewish identity at all when I started. I uh, was like many, I was like, you know, many Jew, uh, American Jews, somewhat affiliated to a synagogue, hated it, abandoned it, abandoned it totally and absolutely, um, didn't, step in, uh, didn't step into a synagogue until my, um, we weren't married then, Deborah and I were living together, living in Vermont, until she forced me to go to this conservative synagogue in Rutland, Vermont on Yom Kippur. I lasted about 30 minutes and, and fled. That's 30 minutes more than I could do. <laughs> okay, it was torture. For the first, I, I, my experience today is quite different. But at any rate, that was 30 minutes of torture in hell. She stayed for five hours, didn't understand a word, had no idea what was going on, but she said it was extraordinary. Go figure. At any rate, um, as I said, the the... The journey itself, we opened up ourselves to the, all possibilities. The last possibility in the world that I would have ever considered was reconnecting with a Jew or discovering my Jewish identity. It's not what I asked for. It's not what I thought we were going to find. I'm sure we're going to end up in the uh, ashram in Rishikesh with, you know, Maharishi and the Beatles or something, you know, not, not this. So... <laughs> Um, but this is how the universe works, or, or God, whatever you wish to call it. We just kept on encountering the Holocaust in the most serendipitous ways, and it kept on reawakening something within me that was obviously very buried. And it kept becoming happening at time after time after time. Now, uh, it never occurred to me that it would possibly be a wedge between Deborah and myself. And I and and I, I wouldn't say it became a wedge. It's not exactly right, but we became we were faced with some difficult choices as it became more and more obvious that my Jewish roots were being exposed to me, and that I couldn't run away from it. I mean, I also see that as psychologically a very and spiritually not just not just spiritually. It's not a, just a spiritual search. I see it as a psychological search because I think. For me, being Jewish was as much as, as anything an identity, as, as much as a spiritual path. And, and I think that I had awakened in me on this trip a lot of symbols from childhood 
that were a very Jewish of nature, even though I myself had rejected it all. But they were still there, whether it was the Holocaust or Israel or, you know, the Six-Day War and various things that I could remember from childhood that had a, actually a, a much more profound effect on me than I could have possibly imagined. Well, let, let me say when you were 12, when you were 12, 12 you wrote a play uh, about yeah. the Warsaw Uprising. And it was hard to stage because I think you, you wanted 20,000 people on stage. Uh, but uh, that, 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 we're, we're the same generation. And during that period of time, you had the Eichmann trial and, you know, we all, and so all of this imagery was coming at us all the time. Uh, did that, how, how did that affect your Jewish identity and your spirituality at the time and, and moving forward? Well, first of all, I have to tell you, as a kid, and as I got into more spiritual pursuits, you know, whether it was, you know, getting into all the Castaneda books or, or, or using a lot of substances to get, uh, reach altered states, Jewish part was never, ever an issue or a question. I had no interest, didn't speak to me in the slightest. On the other hand, um, the things that you mentioned historically, the kinds of incidents that we went through, whether, as I said, I can, you know, as I write in my book, most Jews of my generation know where they were when Israel won the Six Day War. It's like, you know where you were when, when 9-11 happened or when Kennedy was assassinated. There's certain kinds of markers psychologically that are, go very deeply in our psyches. Right. And I think that there were, I mean, I remember my father reading Exodus by Leon Uris. You probably remember that book, okay? Crying. I just have that image so strongly in my mind of that. Uh, my mother, who was a, as unreligious as you, could, as you could find, but was a Hadassah lady. She was the president of Long Island Hadassah, fighting with a congressman to get um, them to support Israel on, you know, in various ways. I have these kinds, these, these were memories that I basically erased or sort of erased and, and acted as if they were no longer part of me. Yet those psychological markers don't disappear. Right. You can ignore them and you can repress them. But what happened on this trip by opening ourselves up to new experiences, a lot of those repressed memories came to the surface and I couldn't run away from them. So I would say that, that so much of this journey was as much as a journey towards identity. And to me, I don't make a distinction between identity and, and spirituality. The more grounded that we are in ourselves, the more we know who we are and where we come from and um, what makes us tick, the more we can express ourselves spiritually as well. Um, I mean, my sense of spirituality is a very grounded spirituality. I mean, I always remember the, the poem by uh, Gary Snyder when he talked about the disembodied teeny boppers. Um, and he was making a very strong statement who were disconnected from the earth. So um, I don't see spirituality as an escape. I see a spirituality as a entry into oneself. And I don't make distinctions between psychology and spirituality. To me, they're just a continuum. They really are. Okay? So um, that's why I don't like certain kinds of psychology. I don't like cognitive behavioral therapy, even though I know it well, because it's too mechanistic for me. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's for a whole nother discussion. Okay, speaking of such, um, you've lived a long life. You've been, you've, you've seen uh, patients or clients your whole life. You've dealt with turmoil in your own 
life and now uh, great grief and sadness. What do you, what have you learned and what can you relate to the, our audience, all of whom are people who take their spiritual lives seriously and uh, also are living in the world? What can right. you tell us about dealing with the uh, unexpected, the catastrophes, the difficulties, the loss, the challenges, and so forth? What have you learned? How do you navigate those waters? Yeah. Right. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, we, we just came off of the Jewish holiday of uh, Sukkot. And one of the, the books that we read during the holiday of Sukkot is Ecclesiastes, Kohelet in Hebrew. And Ecclesiastes, I consider to be the first and best self-help book ever written. And what it really talks about, it, talks, it, it translates the word in Hebrew called hevel, but they translated futilities in, futility in English. It doesn't mean futility. It means hevel is mist, vapor. It's something that's here and then it's gone. And um, King Solomon, who wrote uh, Ecclesiastes, keeps on repeating that phrase, that nothing in this world is permanent. Everything moves on and changes. And I think that there's something on the, that can be both terrifying, on the other hand, very liberating, and for me, it's, I think, more liberating, knowing that everything changes, everything moves on. I mean, I always loved, like, with the whole concept of, like, with the mandala in the Buddhist religion, where they will make a gorgeous mandala, and then they erase it, not to get attached to things, to extent that your whole identity is, war is caught up in whatever it is that you're attached to. So I think that, that first of all, there are beautiful times and there are difficult times and it's all part of life and it's all part of the story of our, our individual stories. We hold on to the beautiful times and as if that, that is the way it always has to be, then we'll suffer terribly. Okay? And if we think that the painful times are the end of everything, that too is a, a form of terrible suffering. I think that we have to just have a certain kind of equanimity in life to accept and be, first of all, to be fully present and enjoy the moments. And I think that's another of the examples in, in Ecclesiastes is really to enjoy the moments we have. I, you know, whether it's eating, I mean, I, I can wax on and on about a pizza with vodka sauce that I had in Chamonix, France, that was an out of this world experience. <laughs> to me, it was a spiritual experience right. of the highest level. It was transformative, it really was. I can talk about flying down the mountain soaring. And at the same token, I've had moments with my wife with Alzheimer's that were just deeply touching and beautiful and painful, but also very spiritual. So I don't, I don't think we can define and put in a box something that's moving all the time. We're in movement. We're in flux. Eventually, we're going to leave this world and whatever is beyond this, we'll get there as well. Um, but I think that for me, Spirituality is living fully, absolutely, choosing to live in the present. And whether it's sad or it's joyous or sometimes both, that's the way I want to live till I die. Great. Beautifully put, again, and to our listeners, uh, Riding the Edge, a love song to Deborah. Get the book, it's available. Uh, and uh, it's, I, I, I would categorize it as, as self-help, self-exploratory, uh, uh, experiencing life fully, 
uh, all those things. And, and I think what, what, what I, what, your message to me more than anything is, look, uh, it's, we're all gonna, we're, we all aspire to good times. That's what our culture, that's what pop culture teaches us. But it's not always gonna be like that. And, and uh, you have to deal with it and accept it and flow with it. And uh, there might, there might, you might start developing some depth to yourself some spiritual basis because that's more than anything else we've learned historically that's going to allow people to navigate those waters in my in my humble opinion but in, and i think you articulate that uh, as well as anybody i've uh, heard so uh, great I want to add also to go back to phil in baseball and willie mays <laughs> you know talking about transitory moments my you know going back now thinking about your question about spirituality and what you learn from the one of the things I learned is I was, I told my mother when the Giants left New York, I said, I'm never eating again. I'm going on a hunger strike for life. Right, right. That's I couldn't, this was, <laughs> this was the first experience as a child that things don't last forever. Right, right. And it and was- same, a, same for me, when the Yankees started losing, I, I couldn't believe oh, it. I, didn't think I don't want to hear from you, Dennis, as Yankee fans. We were abandoned. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Michael and I you were abandoned it. as and, and, children. Yeah. yeah and no, by the way, as fan, I never hated the Dodgers, but I hated the Yankees. <laughs> Me too. We had that in common. Hey, look, okay. that hasn't and changed. We were the evil was, empire even then. I was, in, I was in Copenhagen, Denmark, three years ago. I had a Yankee hat on. Which, and I was walking down the street and some guy looks at me and goes, the Yankees suck. And, and, and I said, wait a second. He was from Boston, by the way. Like that. We had a good I, laugh after that, but you know. Goes, I live in LA and I have a, a B Brooklyn cap and a B Boston Red Sox caps and I alternate them and I, it makes me very popular here. Yeah, but sure. back to your book, Michael, we only have a few minutes. I was very moved at the end and reading, uh, well, the very end of the, of the epilogue. I wanna read a, a couple of sentences and have you briefly comment if you would, it makes a good ending for us. Okay. You wrote, sometimes angels wait around the bend to guide you home. And sometimes terrifying challenges demand you dig into yourself and find your truth. And sometimes there are questions for which there are no good answers. That uh, comes uh, in your epilogue after you reveal that your uh, that Deborah has Alzheimer's. Tell us about uh, perhaps you know a comment on on that passage. Well, I think that um, it really summarizes the journey. I don't mean just this journey that we took over a six seven month period, but I think the journey of life which is that exactly that there, you're open to the world, you're open to the joy and pleasures and beauties that whether it's interacting like with you guys just today and it's you know a lovely connection, it's a special moment or whether it's dealing with the painful realities. I mean, um, two years ago, I had um, started having strange symptoms while I was climbing a mountain and turns out I have five fused discs in my neck and I'm now uh, walk with a cane two years later. I was a 72 year old stud climbing mountains and doing all stuff. No longer, things change. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I you know, I, I, it's very interesting. A young man who lives next to me, he's 35 years old, hadn't seen me in a while, saw me walking with the cane. He says, I can't accept the fact that you're that way. And I said to him, that's your problem. <laughs> you're well, looking at who I once was. You have to come to terms with who I am. I'm happy with who I am. I let go of that. You know, one door closes, another door opens. Okay, it's not just a cliche, it's true. And um, so I would say the same thing. It's, it's just live life. You know, you never know what will be around the corner. You really don't know. And no matter how many times we try to control life because we're so afraid of the unexpected, the unexpected will still happen. If one thing COVID should have taught us all is how the unexpected can transform our lives. And it, as it really truly has. And um, there are all the questions, I, I, many more questions. You know, my, my wife shouldn't have gotten Alzheimer's. She doesn't have, the, she doesn't have any of the variants, the DNA, the genetic variants. She has no history in her family. She was incredibly healthy. She spoke six languages. She, she was a brilliant woman, PhD in psychology. She's not supposed to get Alzheimer's. She's not the profile, yet it happened, okay? Do I have any answers to that? No. Does anyone have any answers? No. But that's life. We have to live with the uncertainties and the questions. Good. Well put. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. A pleasure. The pleasure. Thanks for being with us, Dennis. And writing, 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 I hope Willie Mays lives until he's 120. You know, I, I, I one, one last thing on Willie Mays. I was a Mantle fan, but when Willie Mays caught that ball over his shoulder and threw the guy out, I just thought, I just thought Mantle, Mantle couldn't do that. It yeah. was like... Nick Wirtz, 1954, right. World Series against the Cleveland Indians. He's right. When did the, maybe, maybe the greatest play in baseball history. There you go. Okay. Smile on his face. Yep. Thank you all so right, much. All right, folks. We got it. We will. And Alzheimer's and everything else. Again, Dennis, do you want to uh, say the name of Michael's book again? Yeah. Uh, Riding the Edge, a love story to Deborah. A love uh, song. A love, a love song. Wait. Riding the Edge, a love song to Deborah. And, uh, I also want to mention, uh, for those listening or watching, please subscribe. It's free, and we'd appreciate you just hit the button and do that. Okay. So, Michael, thanks again thank for you being so here. Thank you so much. A pleasure.